You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Friday, May 29, 2020, just after market close here in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington here in New York, joined shortly by Ed Harrison in Washington, D.C. But first, Peter Cooper with the latest market news. Thanks, Ash. I'm going to talk about Canada. Statistics Canada released a new report today concerning some of the country's most recent economic data and how they have fared in light of the coronavirus pandemic. In the first quarter of 2020, Canada's annualized GDP contracted 8.2%. This number is slightly better than what was expected. Economists were predicting a 10% decline, but an 8.2% contraction in Canada's GDP on an annualized basis during the first quarter is steeper than the U.S., whose output contracted 5%. Statistics Canada also released a preliminary estimate for April output, which showed a drop of 11% following a 7.2% contraction in March. This is the most severe contraction in Canada since the 2008 financial crisis, and it's expected to be the deepest contraction of the Canadian economy since World War II. About 3 million Canadians lost their jobs in March and April, and over a third of the labor force is now unemployed or experiencing displacement, such as reduced work hours, according to a report in the Wall Street Journal. As a result, Canadian household spending fell 2.3% in the first quarter, which is the largest quarterly decline recorded. During the same period, the household savings rate went up to 6.1% in the first quarter, as opposed to 3.6% in the previous quarter. Statistics Canada also reported that Canada's consumer price index for April fell by 0.2% on a one-year basis, which makes Canada one of the first major economies to be under deflationary pressure for consumer prices. The Bank of Canada expects the GDP level to be 15 to 30% lower in the second quarter from the end of 2019. The central bank had acted early in March when they cut interest rates from 1.75% to 0.25% and participated in quantitative easing for the first time. And the Canadian government also responded with a fiscal stimulus package worth about 240 billion Canadian dollars. And with that, I'll hand it over to Ash. Welcome, Ed. We've made it through another week. Yes, I'm happy for the weekend, I got to tell you. I feel like we've been on camera twice today. Is that right? I, I think that is the case. And you've been the host both times. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yes, I have. Um, you know, this is uh, it's been uh, another week in, in markets. Uh, let's just take a look here at what's happened. Uh, so, you know, S&P is up about uh, half a percentage point to the 3044 level. Dow basically flat up uh, 0.1%. Uh, NASDAQ, a little momentum up 120 points, uh, plus 1.3%. Yes. And, you know, I think that uh, the news from President Trump earlier today, uh, the markets actually reacted relatively positively to the news, uh, which included uh, uh, stripping Hong Kong of some of its special status and also uh, pulling out of uh, the WHO, both moves which were um, basically against China from the United States perspective. 
Yeah, not a slow news day by any means. Uh, what were your thoughts about those two key stories? Yeah, I mean, the, the way that I was looking at it is as confirmation of this thesis that the what was a trade war before the coronavirus hit has become a cold war of sorts uh, now, that we're, we're seeing an escalation. And so the first thing that I thought to myself was, what's the likely salvo from the Chinese on the other side? And I think that the likely salvo is uh, a further escalation of sorts. Uh, some sort of tit for tat. I don't think it's going to be a de-escalation in terms of, okay, now we're going to buy more of your stuff to fulfill our agreement on, on the trade front. It's rather going to be acrimony of some sort. And so a furthering of this Cold War mentality that we're seeing. Yeah, un unfortunately, that seems as though it may be the case. Uh, you know, it's been a pretty big news day when uh, the president signing an executive order um, potentially limiting some of the uh, protections that social media companies have. Uh, you know, when that doesn't even make the top two stories, it's been a big news day. Yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of it is geopolitical. You know, which is outside of our wheelhouse. Certainly, you know, I don't know how to react about uh, the riots that are going on uh, and what that means uh, from a market perspective. Yeah. Um, I think that it's a net negative for the likes of Google and Amazon and uh, and all of the tech companies. What happened in terms of the social media thing? But let's just see how that plays out. I have more of a a view on China just because when you look back at the last global recession that we had, the Chinese were very instrumental in terms of the amount of stimulus that they added in terms of the boost that we got to the economy. And right. so to the degree that we're now in this Cold War type situation, that's going to be negative for growth. And I think that uh, it's, it's going to put a headwind on uh, risk assets. And it definitely does have a market impact, whereas the other two, I think, are less – it's less sure what the market yeah. impact is going to be. Yeah, you know, very good points. I think the, the short back of the envelope answer is probably additional risk coming on to the table in the form of, uh, you know, potential political uh, and social instability and obviously uh, a potential headwind for FANG stocks uh, and certainly for, for Twitter. But, you know, before we go too far down that rabbit hole, I just wanted to say I, I especially enjoyed your interview with Double On Capital's uh, Bill Campbell this week. I thought it was just really interesting uh, to hear him really unpack some of the mechanics uh, of what's happening in Europe and also in China. Uh, it's just incredibly tied to a factual analysis uh, of the mechanics of how public policy, monetary policy, fiscal policy, trade policy get implemented in those regions. What were your, were your takeaways from that interview? You know, what I thought was that it's amazing how double line, how broad their focus is. And I, I, you, just so you know, I mean, you know this already, that double line is run by Jeff Gunlack, and he's the CIO of the company. Uh, Bill, he works hand in glove with Jeff in terms of making decisions. So, you know, this is Bill uh, representing Double Line in terms of what their asset allocation is. So, it, what, normally we think of Double Line in terms of, you know, what they're doing in the United States. But what Bill was showing us is basically that they have a much broader uh, scope in terms of what they're thinking about, both in terms of rate policy and in terms of 
bonds. And that's a, a very sophisticated outfit in terms of their holistic view of where you can invest, uh, where there's relative value to be made. I think that it was a great understanding both of uh, you know what the market risks are, but also what's driving those risks from a political economy and an economic perspective. And you have to know that if you're dealing with global markets, bonds, and and FX. And so I, I, that's my, that was my takeaway. Yeah, very well said, Ed. And let me just ask you, there were two points that stood out to me, and I'm curious to, to get your thoughts on them. Uh, the first was that he had a very nuanced way of thinking about uh, the EU aid package, the potential for debt mutualization, uh, or potentially uh, the uh, uh, you know the possibility that may not occur. And he said, um, you know, he basically said that uh, that the new uh, the new 500 billion euro package that they're putting into place is not a permanent fixture of the EU budget. And he called it a quote clever way to skirt the issue, uh, meaning of not creating a true fiscal transfer. And he said, this is not. A Hamiltonian moment. I'm curious what your thoughts were about that. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm known to be somewhat skeptical of the ability of Europe to get it in line over the short term, though I think that over the long term, they do get it in line. You know, when push comes to shove, they understand what, what's on the table. Merkel shows that, but they're not willing to make the next move until it's existential. So I largely agree with what he was saying. What I would say is that in subsequent days since we did that interview, it's clear to me that, uh, yes, he's correct, that this isn't a Hamiltonian moment, that, in fact, this is uh, something that is a special uh, program. It's it, it has a sell-by date, and when it goes away, it'll go away. It's almost like the border controls within Europe. That is, is, is that during this coronavirus period, they set up border controls. There's no way, no how, that we should be thinking that that's going to be a permanent fixture of how the market works. It's just for this particular time that the Schengen Agreement market is, is closed down in that way. And I think that you could say the same thing about this. This isn't a you know Pandora's box that's being opened. And so eventually the frugal four will fall into line. They'll have some sort of, of fudge and then we'll just move on from there. Yeah, you know, that's such an interesting metaphor. The Schengen area uh, is not going away, and uh, permanent mutualization of fiscal policy is not here to stay. I was thinking when I was listening to it, this is really just such the perfect interview for Ed Harrison to be doing, because these were so in your wheelhouse. And, and the second thing uh, that he said that I'm curious to hear uh, your view on, because it's also uh, so in your wheelhouse, was he was talking about um, what it would take for China uh, to develop a, a reserve currency with the UN. And he talked about effectively, I think what he called them were institutional requirements. And he said, look, you know, the US has deep, liquid, open capital markets with decades, even centuries of history. Uh, the US has robust reporting standards, uh, disclosure requirements uh, for corporations, and, and, and perhaps most important of all, we have an open capital account. These are all challenges uh, that, or just you know, a sort of uh, uh, placement along the development continuum where China has not yet gotten. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that when you look back on it and reflect. No, I, I agree with him. And I think it's it's a view that other people have made. That is, is, is that, you know, the dollar is the best currency of fiat currencies that are out there. 
bar none. There, there's no imminent threat from any other currencies. And if you think about other standards that we've had where there were other reserve currencies, let's not talk about gold per se, but you know when the British pound was preeminent, a lot of that had to do with their flow. That is, is the flows came through the, the UK, through the British empire, and that facilitated, that greased the engines of trade. And that's the position that they held. The the Chinese, they're a closed economy, relatively speaking. And as a result of that, it makes it very difficult for them to, to serve that liquidity function. When we're always talking constantly about the Fed, the Fed this, the Fed that, is there any way, shape, or form that you can think of where the PBOC would be performing the role that the Fed is performing now in the next five years, the next 10 years? I mean, I don't, I don't see it in any way, shape, or form, and so therefore, I don't understand where the the bid would come for using yuan in any sense, because the dollar is facilitating that role. You could call it my liberalism bias. That is, is that you know, free markets, open economy, those kinds of things are the sort of thing that are facilitating the dollar in that role. Uh, and if your economy is not as open then you aren't going to be able to play the, the liquidity role that the U.S. dollar is playing. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And uh, it also sets up the nice flavor for what happens uh, over the course of that interview. If you haven't already seen it, uh, do check it out because it's a, it's a really strong piece. And let me make a, an analogy, I think, that goes back to something that Roger was saying about, uh, you know, let's call it the Frankfurt versus London uh, paradigm. So what happens when uh, the uh, EU and the UK are separated on a permanent basis? Because, you know, the, the Frankfurt's not a replacement for, uh, for London in terms of what I would call flows that London has developed a, a place in the world that allows it to have flows run through it. It's the perfect infrastructure. So, you know, when when everything uh, is is done with the EU and with the UK with regard to uh, Brexit, London will still play a very important role just because of the infrastructure it's set up. And I would. Uh, make that analogy with regard to the U.S. dollar and the role that the U.S. dollar plays in the reserve currency uh, status. Similarly, you could also look at, going back to China, Hong Kong versus Singapore. I think that what Trump did today you know, is the first nail or the last nail, whichever, in the coffin for Hong Kong as a center in Asia that's similar to the center that London is for Europe. I think that you're going to see an increasing number of flows go to other markets uh, and away from Hong Kong because it's not a place uh, where you can expect the rule of law to prevail. Yeah. Important points about Hong Kong, and we can pick up on those again in a moment. But I'm curious uh, to hear you sort of unpack for people who don't follow international capital flows as closely as you do, what are some of the characteristics or parameters that make London such an ideal location currently for international capital flows? I think it's uh, uh, intellectual capital, uh, banking infrastructure, a um, you know historical, uh, what I would call the um, 
establishment of uh, of protocols. You know, when you think about uh, British law, as an example, as being the law where a lot of debentures are, um, are are based on, that's because of a history of dealing with these kinds of things. So all of these things have built up actually before the United States was the world's reserve currency, the UK, you know, has actually afforded itself this role because of its role in the past, because of flows that came through and the built-up history that it has. Whereas Frankfurt, is, as an example, is a city of, you know, five or 600,000. It's not even one of the top five cities in, in, in Germany in terms of size. And so in many ways, it's not really a place that you could say rivals London in terms of its infrastructure, its architecture, and, and its preparedness for uh, being able to take over the role that London plays today. Right. You know, it sounds like the um, the simple answer to that is that it's basically uh, it's basically human capital, the human capital stock, to use a phrase that uh, Kevin Hassett recently got in trouble for saying in a slightly different context. Right. And, and you know, so uh, w when people talk about the um, UK leaving the EU permanently, whether it be a clean Brexit or a negotiated agreement, is it going to be Paris? Right. Instead of Frankfurt, uh, there are a lot of. Is it going to be, uh, you know, Switzerland? Uh, I think that Roger he made a good case for it not being uh, in Zurich. It's being uh, continuing to have a lot of flows go through London. Yeah, you know, the one thing that I'm certain of is that all of those great European capitals are going to be competing aggressively to be the next center for capital flows because it's going to mean tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in the years and decades to come for the country that's able to supplement, even if it's only a portion of the capital flows uh, that get transferred on a net basis out of London after Brexit. Yeah, and you know, let, let's think about that in the the context that I mentioned before: Hong Kong, Singapore, and, and to a degree, Shanghai, other uh, places. I think that the Chinese want they're they're fine with uh, sacrificing Hong Kong and moving uh, the the center onto a, 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 a sh the shores of of China in some capacity, having the flows go through a, a Chinese city on mainland China. Uh, but then you have Hong then you have Singapore. As, as a potential rival there. And so the sense that I'm getting is that, uh, for good or for bad, is that, you know, we're in a world now where the Chinese have decided that it's clear that uh, they have their sphere of influence and the, and the United States has theirs, and it's, there's no more Chimerica. We're not joined at the hip anymore. There's a rivalry that's there and it, will, it won't go away, and it's only going to escalate, and they're prepared to do whatever is necessary in order to continue their growth, continue their employment in that, uh, in, in that new world. I said on the AMA that we did today uh, that I thought Russell Clark, he made a good uh, case for the Chinese being prepared for that eventuality, having the, uh, the, the export uh, channels in order to be able to master this uh, this transition well. You know, you know, you have two different uh, views. You have a view that says that the Chinese they have too much debt, they're too externally dependent, and therefore this is going to be a hard transition for them, and therefore they have no good alternative to a negotiated agreement with the the Americans. And then you have the view that I think Russell Clark, uh, in the interview that he did with Rao that came out today 
says very well that actually, no, the Chinese, not only do they have raw materials at their access in, in, Europe, in um, Africa and in Latin America, but they also have export within Asia. In fact, because they are Asian, potentially they could create a sphere of influence in the exact same way that the United States has done in, uh, in the Americas. So that is a potential outcome uh, from this new Cold War that's happening. You know, one of the things that you said uh, that was rather interesting, to me at least, was the idea of potentially moving uh, the banking center uh, to mainland China. And, and the question that I had is, you know, might a cynic say that in five years, uh, Hong Kong will be mainland China? There will be a distinction without a difference. The Shenzhen River that separates the two will be no more material a barrier uh, than the Hudson River is uh, for those of us here in New York, uh, cut off from uh, mainland America. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, I would think that that is uh, a move that would be fraught with peril. Uh, you know, people talk about the same sorts of things. There was a Chinese general who was talking about Taiwan in the, in the same fashion. But clearly, you know, when there's turbulence globally, uh, pandemic, uh, economic turbulence, then all sorts of opportunities open up that countries uh, want to take advantage of. And nothing's off the table over the, the medium term, over the next two to five years. And I think that's what you were talking about, five years, yeah. uh, 10 years. We, we, we just have no way of knowing what's going to happen. And, and so uh, there's a lot of volatility uh, in, in terms of the geopolitical situation facing us going forward. Yeah, you know, and that volatility is driven uh, in in large measure just by the complexity of the issues that are involved here. And I think that your points cued that up rather nicely. It gives you a sense of the you know co complexity, indeterminacy, and interdependence of all of these regions, and just how complicated it is to attempt uh, to you know project forward over a period like five years and and have a, a reasonable simulacrum of what you think is going to happen. It's just very challenging. So I mean, yeah. It think, let's think about it and and break it up into uh, four, you know, four buckets. We'll call it uh, emerging markets, China, Europe, and we'll call it North America. Forgetting about uh, Japan for a second. And in terms of where the uh, excess um, growth is going to come going forward, as compared to say. 2008 or 2000. Now, in the two th early 2000s and periods past, all of the incremental growth coming out of a global recession came from the United States. Uh, it, the first time that we saw that that was not the case was in the 2007 to 2009 recession and then the recovery, where it was really you know a supercharged, infrastructure-charged, Chinese uh, stimulus-led uh, recovery that brought us uh, out of that. So in the absence of this, let's say, uh, where w the world is not benefiting from that as one potential outcome as a result of the Cold War, then we're therefore looking to emerging markets or to uh, Europe or to the United States again. And with the debt levels that we're seeing in the developed world, that includes the U EU and the U.S., it's very unlikely, in my view, that we will not see significant deleveraging, meaning that we're going to see slow growth o over the longer term. So that leaves you only with emerging markets for any sort of growth. And then you have to make a, a bet uh, about specific countries and their ability to have wherewithal in this particular environment. So 
those are the kinds of things that I think uh, when you talk about the indeterminacies that we're, you have to think about that are, are going to affect uh, you know, trade flows, they're going to affect markets, both equity and debt, as well as uh, currency markets. Yeah, so let's talk about that. You suggest that there's a, a the, if growth is going to be driven by emerging markets, and and emerging markets are not a monolithic block. There's going to be some heterogeneity there in terms of those individual stories. What are the particular emergence, emerging markets that you're looking at, and why? Well, one that I'm looking at that I think is not going to necessarily be a leader is South Africa, as an example, because uh, you know they're now just getting hit by the pandemic in a very hard way. Uh, there's in, increased uh, economic uh, insecurity and what I would say income inequality in the country as a result of the policies over the past number of years. But in addition to that, you have to think that they have huge debts that they have to pay going forward, and they're one of the fragile company countries in the emerging markets. Uh, Obviously, the same thing is true for Turkey. Same thing is true for Argentina. Uh, so I would say that uh, it's it's difficult uh, unless you're an emerging market specialist to really you know go into specific countries that you think will come out better on the other side. And, and I'm not an emerging market specialist, so I I couldn't say you know who are the the shining stars i can definitely tell you who are the countries that i would avoid and and those are three or four right there yeah and at times uh avoiding some of the uh worst performers is in some ways better than uh being uh you know believing that you can pick the winners you know it, it's really such an interesting point that you mentioned about covid obviously covid now uh ravaging uh south america uh and uh you know it's it's going to be interesting to, to tease out whether or not these are our seasonal effects. It's obviously a terrible impact uh, on a human level, uh, and you know, on the day uh, today that uh, that uh, that President Trump has withdrawn or is moving to withdraw the U.S. from the World Health Organization, do you think that that is a, a you know a significant and material change in terms of global health and preparedness, uh, or do you think this is just a political statement that doesn't have much impact? It, you know, I, I, that's not in my wheelhouse. I can't yeah, really. Me say either. It. That's why I'm asking. I just have no idea. <laughs> you know, right? just, I think it's it's uh, you know on its face, it's it's very political, but it can't possibly be positive in terms of global preparedness to yeah. the degree that the World Health Organization played any positive role in terms of global preparedness already. So, uh, yeah. withdrawing is only going to inflict pain on the World Health Organization, and Trump believes, therefore, on China, uh, but it's not going to help global preparedness. Yeah, that seems right to me, too. I mean, clearly, it's it's not going to be a help. I guess the question that I have, just because I'm just not knowledgeable about that particular sector, uh, is how great a hindrance it's going to be. Uh, is it something that's just a, sort of a, you know, a marginal impact, or is this something that's really substantial? I just don't know the answer to that question. And, and you know, the reason you don't have the answer to the question and the reason that you're asking it to begin with is why this is such a difficult situation, especially today. Today, again, points out how much, uh, not just policy, but politics, uh, geopolitics is driving 
uh, events right now on the ground. And what I'd like to see actually at Real Vision going forward is, you know, us thinking about who are the right players to tell that story from a historical context. What is this similar to in terms of the times that we're living through uh, you know, just from a, a, the upheaval. Is it, uh, as we have postulated many times, similar to the uh, Great Depression? Or is there a 1968 scenario where there was a lot of social upheaval, which makes some relevance? I'd love to, to hear a, a historian talk about the uh, the the relevance of uh, politics in terms of the economy. Uh, the reason I bring up 1968 as an example, everyone knows about the secular bear market that we had from 66 to 82. Actually, 68 was really the top for the economy in the United States. It rolled over. We had a recession in 1970. And from there, you know, we had that lost decade in the 1970s. So I think that uh, there is something to be said for uh, you know, the economy and large social movements having a mutual effect on one another. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with that completely. And it's so interesting. Here we are, two markets guys having a conversation about markets, and we're talking about the World Health Organization. That in itself tells you uh, how far outside the, the traditional parameters of, of markets we have gone with the events that are on the ground. But the reality is, exactly as you suggest, Ed, that if that is driving uh, sentiment, if that is driving um, pricing, uh, we're going to cover it. And it is an interesting question about how we're going to do that. And, uh, you know, I think the one great thing about Real Vision is that we're we're nimble enough uh, to figure out ways of doing it. We can change on a dime. We can have this conversation uh, on a Friday and then do something new on Monday. It's going to be interesting to see how we do that. And I'm, I'm actually fascinated by it because um, while these are obviously very difficult times and, again, generating a lot of human suffering, um, you know, they are also, um, you know, intellectually compelling to understand how these things uh, function, how they interact, and how they cause the reaction function and price discovery in markets. Yeah, and it goes back to something that during the AMA that, that Roger was saying about developing frameworks and tweaking those frameworks or even throwing them out or uh, remodeling them entirely based upon understandings that you glean from other smart people uh, who are looking at it from a different uh, perspective. So, yeah. you know, there there are some historical perspectives you can look at, whether those be in terms of, uh, you know, secular and cyclical patterns, but there are also technical indicators that you can look at in, in historical times and put this in that uh, measure. Roger was doing that with regard to the Fibonacci retracement up to 62, where... Yeah. You know, it was only the Volmageddon where we went to the 76 level. But what about the intersection of, uh, you know, political science and the economy? Is it true that the economy leads uh, the social interaction or is there some sort of reflexivity there at specifically very momentous times in world history. I'm thinking in particular, as I say that, of Neil Howe as an example, in terms of his fourth turning. He's someone who I spoke to uh, earlier this year. Uh, he has a very interesting point of view on this. Yeah, and it's also something that um, you know is obviously it's politically sensitive. But uh, we have a, a, a significant bellwether election coming up in November, and there's going to be an impact from that. And how we think about that and the impact it has certainly going to have reaction function on markets. Without a doubt, Ash, uh, 100%.
Yeah. You know, I, I would only add to that. It, leave us your ideas in the comments. We're curious about what you're interested in hearing about, what frameworks you think apply here, uh, and what are the questions that you have uh, and who can answer them uh, in terms of being able to build up a framework uh, and a viewpoint uh, that adds the most value to the way you think about markets. Yeah. So, you know, Ash, uh, just adding on to that, over the, the, the near to medium term, let's say out to six months, Really, we're talking about the pandemic now. Uh, so I think that we're at a uh, inflection point. We're, we're at a pause where it's not clear, you know, how much of a uh, second wave we're going to get, whether yeah. or not the pandemic will move from the southern hemisphere back to the northern hemisphere in the fall. And, you know, whether or not the reopening is going to adjust uh, very well. So we're sort of at a, uh, a pause where we're taking that all that information in. But at the same time, you know, the, the you and I were just having is about the longer term, the two years, five year time horizon, and the, sort of these secular trends that are developing that I think are going to be very important over the course of the next, uh, you know, cycle that, that we're going to be living in. So there are two time frames at a minimum that, uh, to think about uh, even beyond the immediate uh, present. Yeah, the, the time frame very much remains a question. One of the things that I've noticed, I have a lot of friends who have kids who are in college or going off to college, and I've been watching on Facebook the wide divergence of opinion about when schools are going to reopen. When I saw, uh, I guess it was last week, that Cambridge University was canceling classes until summer of 2021, I thought it was a typo. Um, but BBC has run with that story. It's uh, it's out there. And um, it just gives you a sense of the divergence about how institutions are thinking about opening or not reopening and what timetable that's going to be on. And obviously, those different outcomes are associated with dramatically different potential economic performance if you think about them as being a proxy for the broader economy. But, you know, here's a question. So what is the framework that you use to... Uh to model that out in terms of just from a top-down perspective, how to think about dealing with that level of uncertainty. I mean, because the way that I'm looking at it is as uh, economic friction. And that, you know, irrespective of what your baseline is for the economy, that whenever you add economic friction, then on a overall level, you're going to get lower nominal growth. And then the only question is, who are the winners and who are the losers? And right now, I think the markets are generally talking about the winners and the losers with, you know, the likes of Microsoft, uh, you know, Facebook, Apple, uh, Google being the winners. And then, you know, the likes of uh, the small cap 2000 being the losers. Yeah, you know, I, I, sort of my cynical interpretation is because that's what markets do. Markets are about picking winners and losers. And, uh, you know, that may not be, as you suggest, uh, in terms of framework, the best uh, or most edifying uh, framework to look at something like how we're going to reopen an economy. Uh, markets are very good at picking uh, relative winners and losers, for example, in particular sectors uh, where you can make apples to orange comparisons. Uh, but this is something, um, you know, we get tired of using the word unprecedented, but there's simply no historical precedent for anything like this and trying to figure out what the role, uh, you know, which direction, the directionality of it. So how the economy uh, feeds into markets and also how markets are going to, you know, be some sort of index or indicator of future economic progress. All very complicated questions. Once again, Ed, another full conversation. Thanks for joining us. 
Please have a good weekend, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.